This is the Z-Code Sports Betting Podcast. Are you struggling to find success betting sports? Tired of empty promises and scams handicapping services? Wondering why Vegas sports books become richer and richer and how you could win on sports too? This podcast is what the sports investing industry truly needs. An insider look into proven successful strategies. The Z-Code Podcast is your crash course in sports investing that destroys popular misconceptions and provides invaluable sports prediction analysis tools that you can download for free. We outline insider winning systems from experts that make a living through sports investing and explain how you can do it too. Armed with the best tools in the industry and a proper mindset, sustaining profits is easier than ever before. Welcome to Z-Code Podcast. Hey guys, Jake here and welcome to another episode of our Z-Code Sports Betting Podcast that will help you become a successful sports investor. We are trying our best to bring you the best of the best, the most inspiring guests who are here to share their message, their systems, and their picks with you in order to help you succeed. We take sports betting very seriously and treat it as a business. Because if done right, there is tons of money to be made by professionally investing in sports. And you heard it right. I said investing in sports, not gambling on sports. Today, I have a very special guest on our show. His name is Old School, and as the name suggests, he is one of Z-Code's most experienced bettors. These days, as a retired man, Old School makes his fortune from trading sports. And I mean trading and not gambling. Without further ado, let's start with the first question. First of all, I'd like to thank you for taking part in our podcast. And could you give us a description of your background and what are your origins of your illustrious career in betting? Well, thank you, Jake. I'm I'm, uh, privileged that uh, you and Z-Code have asked me to do this. Happy to participate. (laughs) Uh, And I I would say my my career certainly started off as less than illustrious, but (laughs) it started at a very early age to give you a little background. my brother was my hero. He was uh, over 10 years older than me. My father had a heart condition, so my brother was the one that taught me how to throw a baseball with two fingers so I could pitch in a little league and things of that nature. Um, but he was also working to help support the family, so the time was limited, and I spent every minute I could with him. He taught me how to count using a deck of cards. So... Um, much to my mother's dismay when we'd have company and I was at that, I guess, cute age, you know, where kids are learning alphabets and, and how to count. They would say, Oh, can you count to 10? And my brother would get this grin on his face and he'd go, sure, count to 10. And I would say, ace, deuce, tray, four, five, six, instead of one, two, three, because I learned how to count from the deck of cards. Uh, I also grew up, uh, uh, and my brother obviously, you know, was always in action. He was a gambler, and I wanted to be like him. I also grew up in the TV generation of the 50s, and my favorite show by far was Maverick. He was a gambler, a poker player. He was honest. He didn't win every time. Uh, he wore cool clothes. The nice-looking women were all attracted to him. And even as a kid, I said to myself, you know, that represents freedom to me. If I got good at that, I could go anywhere I wanted with a deck of cards and be able to make a living. So I knew one of the things I wanted to do was be a very good and hopefully even a professional poker player. I would shadow my brother and He would take me to places that at early ages I had no business being, you know, poker games with with grown men. And um, I would sit in on hands and he taught me how to play and he taught me how to play the appropriate cards. And without realizing it, that was my first experience with having an edge or odds. Um, But I didn't know it. I didn't calculate in my head that. When I played in a poker game, uh, I would enter a hand and be approximately about an eight to five favorite. I just knew what cards to play 
from what position I was sitting at the table. And then afterwards, it was sort of reverse engineered, and someone would tell me, oh, mathematically, you played it correctly. So that's very similar to finding an edge in sports. And back to my Maverick reference, the first time I, I realized about the differential between gambling and really having an edge, which is investing, um, on one of the episodes, uh, they asked Maverick to play in a game with all these other great poker players. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. He's going to go in. He's going to beat them all, and it's going to be wonderful. And Maverick turned to the person, and he said, if you want me to go play in a game where everybody has equal ability, then all I'm doing is gambling. <laughs> so I really started thinking about that, and I said, okay, there's a difference between just gambling and knowing how to win at gambling. Now, I didn't use the words edge or probability or, you know, but I was already thinking along those lines. So tell us, how old were you back then when you first started? Well, you know, my father once told me, if you want someone not to believe you, just tell the truth. And I almost was worried about telling my truthful story until I saw a post from Xavier the other day that said he started trading at age 10 because <laughs> I started playing cards or any, or coins or whatever I could do for money at about age 12. And, uh, all through high school, I played poker every day after school with my friends. I was barred from a poker game. Because it was a nickel-dime quarter game, which, you know, was supposed to be a friendly game. And, of course, I wanted to play for more. No one wanted to raise the stakes. But through reading books and through my brother, I learned that you could accelerate the pace of the game. So since I knew I was entering every hand as a favorite, if I was in a hand, it automatically got raised. If somebody bet a nickel and the bet came to me, I never called, always raised to a dime. And the pace got raised. And, you know, this is the kind of game you'd bring $5, maybe $10 to. The average winner loss was in the 6 to $8 range. I won $27 at this poker game in high school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like winning $27,000. Word spread that, you know, I was some kind of a professor. You know, I, I was barred <laughs> from the poker games for a while. So that was, uh, you know, that, that was the start of that. And, you know, I, I saw my brother betting on sports, so I wanted to bet on sports. You know, and he would give me, you know, he would ask me who I would like or tell me what team he'd have and, you know, give me a little bit of the action, even though he usually didn't make me pay off. But then he really set me up with my first official bookmaker, who I'm sure had instructions not to let me get into too much trouble, you know, but I could bet, you know, the very small amounts of money, like, you know, the $25 or even less. And uh, I remember the first official bet that I made. Uh, my favorite football player growing up was Johnny Unitas. He was my sports hero. And I laid the 17 points because the American Football League was a joke at the time uh, in the game where Joe Namath upset the Baltimore Colts and won the game outright. And again, you know, it, it, it shows how bookmakers set lines today. My thinking, I didn't care how many points. I just knew the Colts were going to kill him. You know, I didn't think about the point spread or anything else. Whatever it is, I was going to lay it. The Colts would cover it. Never crossed my mind that they could possibly lose the game. And uh, that was a jolt of reality because I had to scramble around to pay that bet off. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's a fascinating story. Thank you so much for telling us that. Um, I just want to go back to the, the whole poker ideology because obviously your brother got you into it um could you tell us more about how you became a professional in your 20s and 
obviously yes. how did how did you transition the the skills that you had from obviously um playing poker to obviously finding a edge in your in sports the, investing in the late 70s early 80s before Hold'em became the game that was advertised on TV, etc. Oh, yeah. Were legal, <laughs> yeah, right. There were legalized poker clubs in California. And I had moved to L.A. I loved the weather. I had a couple. I was, you know, just in my 20s, my, my mid to late 20s. And life was great. I was living in a beautiful place. And I had a couple of small businesses in the resort areas, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach area. Um that I had, you know, created for myself and being single, living in, in that atmosphere, it was great. <laughs> but I had always heard that even more so than Las Vegas at the time, if you could play in the card clubs at Gardena and win, you could play anywhere in the world. And, you know, I always had the attitude, you know, there's a, a saying that if you shoot for the moon, you may land on the roof. My attitude was always shoot for the stars and you may land on the moon. I, I thought nothing was out of my reach. So I really wanted to try this out. And uh, I had a girlfriend at the time and, you know, she was a, a waitress or whatever. And I said, I want to take, uh, you know, like a hundred dollars of our money. And I, I want to go up there and try it out. And now all the games were five card games, five card draw high, low ball, so I put my name on the board and I was going to play the first game they called me for. Um, I signed up for the one $2 game, the two $4 game. And they called me for the two four low ball game. And I played in the game. I'd never played low ball, but uh, apparently I have what they call natural card sense. I know <laughs> what cards to play from what position. I don't calculate the math beforehand. I just through the experience of playing with older and more experienced people and just having a feel for it, I, I knew what hands to play from what positions where I'd have an advantage. And like I said, afterwards, people that took me under their wing said, yeah, mathematically, that was the correct play. So I won in this small game, $100. And I came home and I was thrilled. And I said, I don't know if I just got lucky tonight, but I went to Gardena. And I won a hundred dollars and, you know, I said, <laughs> I've got to find out <laughs> if I just got lucky or if I really, you know, so I started going back, you know, almost every night and I was winning almost every night. Oh, wow. And then one day, um, it was the Eldorado club and it was very interesting because, um, Telly Savalas, Co Kojak, <laughs> was a silent partner. Every once in a while, he'd come by wearing a cape, and it was very dramatic. And, you know, you ran into all kinds of interesting people there. Uh, the jockey, Willie Shoemaker, used to play up the street at the Horseshoe Club. And God bless him, he never met a hand he didn't like. He played everything. You know, <laughs> uh, Good poker playing is a lot like good investing. There's a lot of work. A lot of it's boring. A good poker player will probably throw away 90% of the hands dealt to him. A pro probably throws away 95% of the hands. <laughs> so one day, the son's owner of the club came to me and he said, we would like you to play here as a professional. They collected from each player, depending on the size of the game, every half hour, a fee. And that's how they made their money. Mm-hmm. And unlike Vegas, where you were just a shill to fill in the seat, you would fold your cards every hand in Gardena. Uh, I had to put together $2,000 until they got to know me because they didn't want people to just take the job and then go broke. So I had to put $2,000 in a bank and, and uh, you know, ran around and I, we put our money together and a lot of my friends put their money together. They had confidence in me and I said, okay, I'm, I'm working for the club. I'm officially a professional poker player. And this was, you know, like I said, late seventies, early eighties, they would send me a check every week for $450. I would play with my own money, take my own losses, um, keep my winnings, 
but you know, that was a nice paycheck at the time. And I was required to play any game from three, six up to, um, 10, 20 that they called me to. And, uh, uh, I did very well at this, but people, and, and, and one advantage I had was I've always looked much younger than I am. Uh, I was carded, you know, in bars up until I was in my forties. So, uh, you know, they see this young kid and, yeah, it's, it's, uh, my mother's gene. She lived 101. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, the problem there was that just because someone calls you a pro people automatically didn't like that game because they assumed a pro would only be playing the best cards and, you know, not giving them much action, which was pretty true. So then they came to me with a different proposition because they could see that even though I wasn't required to, I was playing in games above the level I was playing in the 1530 game. And they said, would you like to be a silent prop? I said, what's that? And they said, don't come to the club for a while. Everybody knows you as the nice kid that owns the t-shirt shop and this and that. You come in, you know, every night, make it a different time, but usually like around when you'd close your store or whatever, come in around six o'clock, work for about four hours, but you have to play up to the 1530 game. And, you know, we're not going to call you. If anybody asks you, do you work for the club? You have to look them right in the eye and say no, because people <laughs> don't like to play with the pros. But they raised my paycheck to $650 a week. And if I found a game that I liked, as long as it was a minimum of the 510 game, then I was allowed to stay and play in that game. Well, that wasn't a problem because I was always either in the 1530 game or what they call the 2040 raised blind game, which was kind of a forerunner of Hold'em. You know, the cards were dealt, and there was an automatic bet made to the left of the dealer for $20, and then an automatic raised bet, a second blind of $40. So it was a pretty hefty game. But um, this is where my girlfriend understood better than I did probabilities without breaking it down to math. This was the deal she made with me when I said, I really want to work for this club. This is my dream since I was a child. I could <laughs> be a professional poker player. And she thought she had a lot of confidence in me. And she thought uh, I was a lot smarter than I probably was in many areas. And she said, here's the deal. I'll continue to work as a waitress. I'll help support us. I know you can do this. I've seen you play with grown men. You, you know, you're, you're a great poker player. You're playing against other people. I'll do this on one condition. I said, what's that? She said, you can't gamble because I always got myself in trouble with bookmakers because they'd give you a credit line. And, and I play for money that I had no business playing for, you know, you, you, all of a sudden you start out at $25 and you get on a good run and then you're, betting a hundred, then you're calling in a nickel, which was 500. And then, you know, uh, one week you get lucky and you win a few thousand bucks and you think, Oh my God, I, I can, I can retire by the time I'm 30. You know, this is easy, but then reality sets in. So I was always scrambling around. I was always in trouble with a bookmaker, but she understood at that early age, the difference between me playing poker where I would be better than the other people because I would have an edge, an EV, an expected value, what we all look for in sports investing, as opposed to betting on sports where I didn't and I always lost. So I made that deal with her. And for a year and a half, I played poker and between the check and my winnings and I kept track of everything. I've always been honest with myself. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people when they go to the tables or they bet with their bookmaker, if you say, how did you do? And they won, they go, Oh, I had a great day. I won 2000. And if they lost, how did you do? Oh, I broke even, not me. I was like, you know, how did your trip go to Atlantic city? I got killed. I lost 18,000. You know, I mean, I, I never kidded myself because I always wanted to know how I was doing. 
and I kept good records in my poker and everything went great. And we paid all our bills and all our expenses and, you know, lived the life that a, a nice life that you live in your twenties off of my poker earnings. And then something terrible happened. Oh, uh, the, 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 the pros, you know, they took me under, under their wing. They liked me cause I was young and I was polite. And it's amazing how much people like you, if you just don't act like a jerk in an atmosphere where there's a lot of jerks, you know? So <laughs> I, I was just a nice guy. I was a nice kid. Everybody liked me. They wanted to see me do well. They taught me stuff. They taught me how to look for people that were playing partners. And, you know, they, they, they just really helped me. Um, and all the pros, uh, they invited me to do something about four of them, something called potting out. And this means that when you won a pot, you would take 10% of it. And you would put it on the back line. And we said, when we, when we had enough money to have $2,500, cause there were five of us, we would bet it on a football game. Cause that'd be 500 <laughs> for each of us. So this so is we the pot- tradition that we take from. Oh yeah. Here's where things from- went south. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we got to the 2,500 and we bet it on a football game and the worst possible thing could have happened to me. I won. <laughs> if I would have lost, you know, it, it just would have been the next day, but I won. And in winning, of course, we all took the money and we put it on the next game and we won. And then we said, okay, it's time to chop it up. So we chopped it up, but this gave me an avenue to a bookmaker, a big bookmaker. When I asked him what the limits were, he said, whatever you can pay off. I mean, just shoot it at us. And I did. And before you could blink your eyes, I was 30 grand into the bookmaker. I couldn't possibly, you know, earn that much at the poker tables. And that was kind of the end of my professional poker career and the beginning of me trying to win it all back in sports. And, uh, as I said, very honestly, there's nothing, you know, I mean, uh, to me, there's nothing to be ashamed of, uh, didn't hurt anybody, but myself, uh, over my, as you put it, illustrious gambling career, uh, I lost hundreds of thousands of dollars before I, I started to understand that, um, long-term, I, I was never going to win at this. Um, and uh had to take a different perspective on it now in the interim i was very fortunate i had to come back from the west coast when my dad died and um i had a great opportunity with a fantastic group it's it's i would call them the 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 z code of commercial real estate just the best (laughs) of the best and uh uh they invited me in and i had a wonderful 30-year career and made a boatload of money, but the, the, the money I made always went to eventually went to sports betting. I, I mean, I guess you could say I was basically uh, in that area, a degenerate gambler. I, I just wanted the action. The other side of the coin, however, was I got to live the type of life that I really couldn't afford. You know, I had a $25,000 credit line. I was flying to the Bahamas or Atlantic City or Vegas would invite me out and they'd pay for a first class ticket. Uh, I was invited to all the big events, the fights, the, you know, so that had some value. I met some good people. um, And of course, I did have my great days where I'd come back with fantastic stories. You know, I'd, you know had a $30,000 run on the crap table or whatever. But, you know, over time, the expected value is with the casino. As we all know, odds work over time. And that's what I tried to explain in, 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 in one of my posts when someone asked me, you know, what does it take to become an expert? Um, I was uh, explaining odds and probabilities and that, you know, if you went to Las Vegas, and you bet $5,000 on, let's say, one hand of blackjack, win or lose, 
all you're going to get comp to is a cup of coffee or the cocktail you ordered at the table. If you took the same $5,000 and spread it out over the weekend and just played at a little $25 table and gave them about three hours worth of action a day, you'd get a free room and free meals for the entire weekend. Now, why is that? Because probabilities work over time. And when you have EV, when you have expected value, it's over infinity. So the longer you play, the more advantage for the person with the edge. And that's why they wanted the time from you. The, the, the very simple example I always use when I try to explain probabilities is if I put three marbles in a cup, Jake, two of them are black, one of them's white. And I tell you that every time you pull out the white marble, I'll give you $100. But every time you pull out the black marble, you give me $100. You might get lucky. You might pull that white marble out even the first 10 times in a row. But I think you'd agree if we did this for an hour a day, every day for a year, um, I'd own your house in about a month because the odds are two to one in my favor. So, you know, that's what sports investing is all about. You, you have to look at long-term and that's, what's always preached on the site because that's, what's correct. And, uh, it's just math. It's just math. This is sort of the, the logic that Z code is trying to push as well. The long-term ideology that, you know, you can't just make money overnight, but you have to really put your head into it and, sort of think of it as a long-term ideology. Um, I mean, that's how I run my system personally as well. I right. think of it as a one-year, 12-months system rather than a month system where we're going to make shit on the money in the first month and then, you know, whatever's going to happen next 11 months, whatever. But it's all about the 12 months. You know, we can lose money in the first month, but then we can make money in the next 11 months and that's exactly where I agree with you because you, you just can't make money overnight it's, it's well, all about absolutely and I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there but the, the you just made me think of another perfect analogy I use and, and that obviously is the stock market you know if you own shares of Google you're not watching the scroll every day it might go exactly. up a little it might go down but at the end of the year you know you're going to get a good yield. Now, if you try to be a day trader or what I equate to a gambler and, <laughs> you know, you're trying to make a killing overnight, you know, with a penny stock or whatever it is uh, or futures or, you know, uh, you know, then you're looking at that screen, you know, every single scroll. Oh, my God, it's up two points. What do I do now? Do I sell? Do I buy more? Do I do this? And that's uh, that's how I always think of it in my head. You know, I, I want to be the long term investor and know that at the end of the year, I can look back and say, hmm, my returns were much better than the stock market. And, and uh, what gave me this whole idea of sports investing and how I discovered Z code was. Uh, a speech I heard Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, make. And, and uh, he said he was actually thinking about opening a sports investment hedge fund. He said there's more public knowledge out there about sports than there ever will be about the stock market. Uh, I mean, what's the stock market about? You try to find your expected value. So you say, if I buy this stock, is it going to be worth more down the road? But there's so many things about the company that you don't know and the board of directors and the decisions they're making. But if you want to do the same thing in baseball, for example, it's public knowledge. You know who the roster is every day. You know who the injuries are every day. You know, I mean, all the information is there if you know how to use it appropriately. And that's when I started thinking about sports uh, as a long-term, legitimate investment tool. <laughs> um, well, speaking of Mark Cuban, actually, he ended up getting his own bookmaker in the end. 
he Is actually that right? went, in a, he went <laughs> in a completely different direction actually and he's investing in the future to be honest he um he runs a website called uh unicorn i believe it's called okay and they are responsible for responsible for the first uh, esports bookmaker in the world so we could say that mark cuban actually knows well, he's actually two steps ahead. We could say that. So he usually is. <laughs> well, turns out he's he's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of bookmakers, actually, I mean, you live in Las Vegas, and as we all know, betting in the U.S. is not exactly allowed in most states. Um, right. I, I would you say. Overall, are U.S. betters uh, spoiled for choice, or do you think it's it becomes as uh, privileged to live in Las Vegas as you do? It's interesting. There, there's there's an upside and a downside, and of course, you try to find the balance. Um, I'm going to digress a little bit, if I may, to tell you an interesting story because I know part of what we're going to talk about is how the gaming industry has changed over my career in it. And, you know, it's, we always talk about be patient. And I love Brendan's quote, you know, just because there's action doesn't mean there has to be action. (laughs) Well, it's a lot easier living in Las Vegas, not to bet on a game. I mean, if I want action, I can drive three minutes away and be at a casino and have all the action I want doing whatever I want. But when you live on the East coast and you're thriving for action, let me tell you, I knew more about the university of New Mexico basketball team than people in New Mexico, because it was one of the few games that was, that started, uh, around eight 30, their time, which was 1130, my time. That means I got to stay up and watch a game till two o'clock in the morning. And I learned about the pit and that it was one of the most difficult places to play like Duke's Cameron indoor stadium. And you know, it's, it's Sunday night or Monday night if it's football season and you know, you got nothing to bet on for the rest of the week. So you just try to cram it all in there because you, you know, you make an excuse to feel like you have an edge, even if you don't. So that's one nice thing about living in Vegas. I've, I have this crazy idea that people with gambling problems should be sentenced to live in Las Vegas for a year (laughs) because you can't live here and gamble. I I mean, you can only do it recreationally. Uh, I still love to gamble, but I keep it in a separate category for my investing. It's in the same category as my scotch and my wine and my nice dinners. It's a, if I happen to win, fine. But if I lose, it's, you know, um, it's in the entertainment section, not in an income stream uh, that I'm counting on. Mm-hmm. When I first started with the offshore books, uh, they were not computerized as far as taking your bets. You call them in like you do with your local bookmaker. They had a little bridge system where I had 10,000 parked so I could move it to different books. I had accounts at Horizon, uh, Heritage was the big boy at the time, uh, Pinnacle, of course. Um, and, you know, they would give you bonuses. And because I was playing just, you know, 1,000 to 3,000 a game, I had seven games in action every day, 10 on the weekend. You know, I, I didn't care about having to roll it over because I'd roll it over in two or three days. So, If I had a bunch of money in one account, I would move it through this bridge system to another account and get a couple thousand dollars worth of bonuses for the reload when I qualified. And, uh, you know, they would do certain things for good players. You know, if I called in a football game and I said, I need this game at five and a half and the game had moved to six and a half, uh, they would look. And if they saw the game was five and a half anytime within the past 20 minutes, they'd let me have it. It was, it was a nice courtesy. Um, when they put in the computers and tried to incentivize me to bet by a computer, as we all know, I, we laugh about my lack, lack of technical skills, 
Um, I was very spoiled because my skill set was in the area of income producing. So, you know, those are the guys that that get the privileges. And um, uh, when they put computers in my company, instead of me having to learn about it, I had an IT staff and they did all that stuff for me. So, you know, when I had to do it myself, I didn't know anything about it. That window had already passed. I, you know, uh, they wanted me doing what I did best, which was go make deals. Uh, uh, I always equate it to the quarterback and the offensive lineman. It, it, it's not fair, but the quarterback gets paid the most money because his skill set brings money to the stadium. You go to the stadium to see Drew Brees break a record, um, to see Aaron Rodgers. You don't go to the stadium to say, uh, I wonder how many blocks the right guard's going to make today, you know, (laughs) but that right guard, he's getting beat up every single play. He's getting murdered. He doesn't make anything near what the quarterback makes. No one knows his name. And it's not that his position is, is, isn't very important. The, the accountants, the, the it guys, all their positions were very important. I just happened to be in the right area. So, um, I'm behind in technology and, uh, uh, I didn't, didn't want to use the computers and they incentivized me. They said, listen, how about if we drop juice on baseball from a 10 cent line to a six cent line? And how about if we drop juice on basketball and football from a 10 cent line to a seven or an eight cent line? Would you try it out at least then? I said, sure. You know, I mean, that, so uh, that's when I started using the computers. But, you know, you used to just call it in. As far as living in Vegas, back to your original question. You know, <laughs> if you look at Brendan and Bear, uh, they correctly will say that the Vegas books are square books. You know, the sharp money is betted on the offshore books at the pinnacles of the world. And. They set the lines and they eventually drift down to Vegas. Sometimes it works to my advantage because sometimes the small, you know, the smaller places are slow to change a line and, and, and maybe it's switched in a direction that's favorable towards you. And I can still catch that line. The other advantage to using Vegas books is, yeah, I, I'm a people person. So I go and I get to know people. I know people that work at the sports book and eventually I make sure I get to know the sports book directors. And, you know, (laughs) so I kind of find out things. I find out who's doing well and, uh, I find out, you know, who the sharps are and where their money is. And, you know, it's, you know, a cocktail here and being nice there, you know, it, it, it gets you advantages. So, uh, Obviously, the answer is you want to have multiple books. It's great to have those connections, but you want to have as many outs as possible to shop for the best lines. And uh, one of the bigger disadvantages in Vegas, and uh, this is something that never came into play until I joined Z Code, uh, was live betting. Uh, live betting is usually very limited in the Vegas books. Um, but uh, uh, I've always been a big fan of some people call it arbitrage. I call it middling. You know, I, I, I love it when um, I, I'm laying three points on a game and I'm catching, you know, eight points back on the other side. Uh, all I can do is lose juice. I have to win one way. But assuming you're laying 10 percent juice on each side, the book is basically laying me 20 to one that I can't hit it in the middle. Now. Obviously, for different sports, you have different key numbers you look for, et cetera. Um, but I only used to be able to set those up at halftime. Now, with live betting, you can look for your numbers at any point during the game. You know, the juice may be a little prohibitive, um, so you have to always know what your margins are. You're, you're, yeah, that, that's one of the discussions that... Luca and Dan and some others and I are having uh, on the wall right now. You know, posting your win-loss rate is irrelevant if you're not posting your average odds. Uh, If you've got a win-loss rate of 65%, it sounds fantastic. 
unless your average odds are two to one and you're losing money. So, you know, we, we would like to see things tightened up in that area a little bit, especially for the newer members that look at some statistics that on the surface look very powerful. But when you peek behind the curtain, you go, well, wait a second. They're really this, this really isn't what it appears to be <laughs> uh, again in that spirit of Z code transparency. That's one of the I, things I love the most about the site. And I totally un- understand what you're saying about the odds. I mean, um, I remember there was a trend maybe four or five years ago when people were really huge believers of betting on really short odds, maybe like minus 400 uh, right. for American odds. And that would be about 125. So if you bet $1,000, it's about $250 of profit. I mean, obviously, you're risking $1,000 on that particular line. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a big risk for a short, a small amount of money you can actually make from this specific bet. And you have to make at least four bets in order to make that $1,000 $1, back. Right. So, um, I mean, there was a trend. Obviously, you have a very high win ratio for short short odds like this and it would come down to about 95% which is fantastic if you're talking about sports investing you know 95% win ratio but are you actually making money in that case which is the question we can ask and you know some people can actually make money from that but some people cannot and yes it's all related to the odds right exactly and it, it it I completely agree. I mean, you have to show your odds, otherwise, we we there's no there's no real. It's meaningless without understanding. that. It's, exactly. It's, yeah. It's um, so uh, the uh, again, you know, what the 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 two things that uh, there's a lot of things that attracted me to Zico, but the two things I really liked were that were. Yeah, the transparency, the way it was originally rolled out on Facebook and and they did everything in front of everybody, just just like you do with your live sessions. Again, it amazes me that you're that you can do that. I mean, that's just (laughs) I I, I, I can't tell you how impressed I am with that. Uh, Not to mention your results. They're they're off the charts, Jake. But um, uh, I felt like I was going to a site where when I read the statistics, whether they were from an expert or a system that was built by Z code or a system that was built by the expert that Z codes moderators were so diligent and the wall was so diligent in policing itself that I could pretty much take what I said, what I saw as gospel. You know, there were no fake numbers. There were no fake claims. There were no games of the century. There were no locks. There was none of that nonsense. And that's what I was looking for. And, yeah, and that's what I try to do to ensure that Z code keeps that level of integrity that makes it head and shoulders above any other sports forum or investing site uh, that I'm familiar with anyway. Yeah, I think that's. And no, I don't to... work for Zico. They're not sending me a paycheck. This is unsolicited. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what they were trying to eliminate in the in the first place. It's it's not easy as a business to eliminate the sort of make money quickly ideology. So as you said, it's 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 bullshit. It's it's not something that you can do. I mean, you can get lucky sometimes. It's like. Uh, doing a scratch card and then winning all of a sudden $20,000, but it's, it's very rare. It comes down to maybe point of a percent. You've so. got it <laughs> over, over time that it, it doesn't seem like much, you know, to the, yeah. to the average but, person, but over exactly. time, uh, all of us know what a point of a percent means over time, a ton a, of money, the difference between winning and losing. It's different. <laughs> As a sports investor, you you have a much higher chance because you're actually thinking about long-term ideology and you have much higher possibilities of winning money long-term 
than a person who's going to put $2 on a scratch card. And that's where I want to move on to the next question because okay. if you've talked about, you know, sports bet betting in the Las Vegas, but I want to talk to you about the baseball betting, which is what you specialize in. And to yes. my understanding, in the 50s, you have hypothetically, and I'm going to quote and unquote, deconstructed baseball as you disagreed on so many levels with the sports basics. Since that time, you've successfully made profit in every single year since you started betting. So please tell us, how did you do that? And how did you arrive in the successful stage of your life, career, betting? <laughs> okay. Um, when I was in my 50s and obviously well into my career and had, you know, had, had done pretty well. Um, I was talking about, you know, my, my gambling. And I, I noticed that, uh, you know, it's in sort of keeping track of how I did, I, I noticed the one common denominator is that I seemed to do well in baseball. Now I, I didn't know if that's because, it was money lines as opposed to spreads. If it was because I just loved it or whatever it may be. And I was talking to one of my business mentors about this. And he said, let me ask you a question. Why are you always going to other people and looking for sports service? Why do you think they know more than you do? And I had read every book written on how to handicap baseball. And there were certain rules that were handed down by Moses, apparently, that you never bet a game until a pitcher's been to the mound three times and things of that nature. And I said, I just disagree with that. And since it's my money and I can finally afford it, I'm going to lose my money on my theories. And my theory was baseball was becoming much more specialized. 90 to 95% of the game was handicapped on the starting pitcher. So at the beginning of the season, I felt there was tremendous value being left on the table because of this silly, what I thought was a silly and incorrect premise that, you know, you had to wait for everybody to get their feet wet before you jumped in. Let's say you had a guy like Randy Johnson, the big unit, who could throw the ball 100 miles an hour. He's going to start the first game of the year. So he's a two-to-one favorite over whoever they're playing against. Well, I also knew that owners, it's billionaires paying millionaires, right? Owners aren't going to make this investment in a $120 million contract to have this guy blow his arm out, number one. Number two, being a fastball pitcher, he doesn't even start pitching well till the weather gets warm. So... One of three things is going to happen. A, he's going to go out there and he's not going to pitch well because the weather's not warm yet and he's not ready. B, he's going to go out there and he is going to pitch well, but the owner's not going to risk blowing that investment out on the first game of the year. So he's going to be on a pitch count at the best. He's coming out after the fifth inning. So I said, okay, I need to learn about middle relievers. I started studying guys who's, I mean, you always knew about the sexy closer, but middle relievers, guys that came in in the fifth and sixth inning, the setup men, you know, who had ever heard of these guys? So I started reading about them and finding out what their stats were and how they did. And I handicapped the game from that perspective because I figured the first five innings were about a push. So if they're laying me two to one and I'm betting on the other team, and their equal and their middle relievers are as good or maybe even better then that's a boatload of value because my philosophy in baseball yeah, again back to your discussion about laying big odds was always um small favorites and underdogs that was my you know I very rarely laid over 135 in a baseball game and I love the underdogs um, uh, I feel that baseball, unlike other sports, is the easiest sport to beat over the course of the season, but the hardest sport to predict a winner on any given day. 
you don't know if that pitcher had an argument with his wife last night, if he's, you know, if he caught his hangnail on something, uh, you know, anything. We've all seen it. So um, I started betting on what I perceived as these big value situations at the beginning of the season. And uh, uh, I'll go ahead and say something at the risk of knowing that only my nephew was monitoring me over my shoulder to make sure that I was doing everything correctly. I'm not talking about a yield or anything else. I'm just talking about games won. And I bet a ton of games. At the All-Star break, the first year I tried this, Jake, (laughs) and again, I wouldn't believe it if I heard someone else say it, I had a win rate of 72% on the games that I had played. Wow. I said to my nephew, look, I, I know part of this is luck, and part of it's a mathematical anomaly, and I'm up a ton of money. Maybe I shouldn't even play the second half of the season. And he said to me, Uncle, um, of course you're not going to hit 72% for the rest of the season. So if you're in it for your ego and you want to say you had a season at 70%, quit now. But if you hit the rest of the season at 57%, you're still going to make a ton of money. I said, oh, yeah, okay. No wonder you're my nephew. Thank you. (laughs) So, yeah. that was that story. And, and it's also a story of believing in yourself and not necessarily putting false credibility in someone else just because they've chosen to write a book, et cetera. You know, all these scam decapper services that we've talked about and probably all of us have messed with that give out the games of the year and every, what I try to explain to people is they're very good at what they do. But what they do has nothing to do with handicapping. They're in the business of merchandising and selling. They're salesmen and they're merchandisers. And that's a big differential. So, uh, you know, Bear, uh, everybody on the wall has been great to me. Bear, for some reason, has been like a, almost a personal mentor to me. And, and he's really taught me, you know, you read these things on these sites, they give out free games and you see these, all these statistics. And I've known for a long time that the trend is generally not your friend, but, you know, bears taught me how to get more and more into advanced metrics, which trends really matter. Uh, I've known for a long time, for example, that a pitcher's win loss record is pretty much meaningless. I mean, he might be pitching a, you know, uh, a, a one or a two run game every time. If he's not getting run support, it doesn't mean he's not a great pitcher. Uh, the earned run average, you know, which has been the gospel. Yeah. You know, that's pretty much irrelevant. Also, I look for the whip, the walks hits for innings pitched. Uh, you, you listen to any veteran pitcher. He'll tell you the value of having that first pitch strike and what it does to the whole count and his rotation and the amount of pitches he can use. Uh, So those were just a few of the tools I used in the subjective part of the baseball progressions and and in my flat handicapping of baseball also. Thank you for listening to Z-Code Sports Betting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Remember to go to iTunes and post your comment and topic suggestion for the next episode. We love to hear from you. See you on the next show. Have a fantastic day.